Hi, everyone, and welcome to Becoming Lincoln. Episode 15, To Keep My Resolves. In April 1840, a group of six working-class men in Baltimore were in a tavern discussing a minister's upcoming lecture on temperance. These men were all heavy drinkers and resentful of the condescension from people they considered, quote, a parcel of hypocrites. After the lecture, they decided to form their own total abstinence society to show they didn't need guidance to leave liquor behind. They vowed to give up wine, cider, and spiritus and malt liquors. And they pledged, quote, to guard against a pernicious practice, which is injurious to our health, standing, and families. The Washington Temperance Society, so named, may have started as a private joke among these friends. But as the days and weeks went on, the group attracted other men struggling with alcohol and looking for a way to treat their addiction. At one meeting, William Mitchell, a tailor who served as president of the group, talked about his 15 years of drinking and the positive changes that the society had brought him. Mitchell's story inspired other men to share theirs, and Washingtonian meetings became famous for members sharing painful stories of alcoholism while drawing support from their colleagues. One early observer of the Washingtonians wrote, quote, To hear the tales of degradation and crime, which some describe as the condition to which they had reduced themselves by strong drink, is enough to melt the heart of stone. And again, to hear these regenerated men contrasting the health, comfort, prosperity, and happiness which are now shed around them with their former lives, characters, and wants, and the wretchedness they had brought upon their families, would make the most insensible heart leap for joy. The Washingtonians are often viewed as forerunners of Alcoholics Anonymous, though unlike the latter organization, they had no program of recovery, just a support system. But it was a revolutionary way to address alcoholism that had come not from prim, abstemious preachers, but working men who struggled with addiction. By 1842, the movement had exploded all over the country and reached Illinois. John Weber, who we last saw heckling Abraham Lincoln's friend Edward Baker, later remembered, quote, During the Washington Temperance Reformation, societies were organized in most of the schoolhouses in Sangamon County and were attended monthly by volunteer speakers. Lincoln thought highly of the Washingtonians. He regularly spoke at their meetings, including one at Springfield's Second Presbyterian Church, once the home of the Illinois House of Representatives, on February 22, 1842, Washington's birthday. In his speech, Lincoln lauded the Washingtonians for their kind and compassionate approach to a problem that often invited scorn. Lincoln said, quote, Those whom they desire to convince and persuade are their old friends and companions. They know they are not demons, nor even the worst of men. They know that generally they are kind generous, and charitable, even beyond the example of their more staid and sober neighbors. Lincoln went on to praise the Washingtonians' enlarged philanthropy, 
saying, quote, They teach hope to all, despair to none. As applying to their cause, they deny the doctrine of unpardonable sin. As in Christianity it is taught, so in this they teach, that while the lamp holds out to burn, the vilest sinner may return. He concluded with a fervent hope that the Washingtonians would help destroy the slavery of alcoholism, linking their cause to a greater Whig belief in law and order. Quote, Happy day, when, all appetites controlled, all matters subjected, mind, all conquering mind, shall live and move the monarch of the world. Glorious consummation, hail fall of fury, reign of reason, all hail. By this point in his life, Lincoln was a teetotaler. He drank in Indiana, and maybe in his first years in New Salem, but by his early 30s, Lincoln had stopped imbibing. His abstinence stemmed less from moral objections than digestive concerns. William Herndon later said that Lincoln felt, quote, flabby and undone by alcohol. Herndon added, quote, he often said to me, I can't drink. All stimulants are nauseous to me. I claim no credit for being a temperance man. His public record bore this out. Lincoln never advocated for temperance measures like the Maine Law, which prohibited the manufacture of liquor. Lincoln, like the Washingtonians, preferred moral suasion instead. The historian Daniel Walker Howe writes that Lincoln's speech reflected Whig belief in self-constructed personalities and the potential individuals had to improve themselves and the world. In Howe's words, quote, The modernization of American society and the creation of new opportunities for personal fulfillment. But Lincoln's behavior from 1839 to 1842 showed he was far from becoming reason's subject. He often let anger get the better of him. In 1839 or 1840, Lincoln learned that a shoemaker who lived near the Stewart and Lincoln office was beating his wife. Lincoln warned him to stop. When the woman was beaten a second time, Lincoln, his friend James Matheny, and two other men kidnapped the shoemaker. Matheny later said, quote, Lincoln and the others tied him to a post near a well back of the courthouse and stripped his shirt. They sent for his wife, who wailed him tremendously. Now, no one should sympathize with this shoemaker. But if Matheny's memory was correct, Lincoln was breaking the law, an act that could get him disbarred. Contrast this incident with one that Joshua Speed said took place in 1839. While riding the circuit with a group of attorneys, Lincoln and another lawyer, John J. Hardin, fell behind the main group. As the attorneys watered their horses, Hardin returned without Lincoln. When asked Lincoln's whereabouts, Hardin said, quote, When I saw him last, he had caught two little birds in his hand, which the wind had blown from their nest, and he was hunting for their nest. Speed said, quote, When he came up with the party, they laughed at him. Said he, earnestly, I could not have slept tonight if I had not given those two little birds to their mother. For good and ill, Lincoln could not restrain himself. His imperial mind had yet to conquer his turbulent heart. 
Lincoln's inner struggles mirrored a public life still in flux. A little over a week before Lincoln addressed the Washingtonians, his New Salem mentor Bowling Green died. Green had been one of the first people outside Lincoln's family to sense the younger man's intellect. He had given Lincoln his start in politics. Green stirred Lincoln's interest in the law and took him in after his breakdown in the late summer of 1835. Green was, as New Salem residents said, a second father to Lincoln, a male figure who understood his protege's ambitions in a way Thomas Lincoln never could. Abraham was asked to speak at a service for Green, either his burial that February or a Masonic funeral later that summer. His old New Salem friend Abner Ellis, who was in the crowd, said, quote, When he arose, he only uttered a few words and commenced choking and sobbing. He told his listeners that he was unmanned and could not proceed. He got down and went to Mrs. Green's old family carriage, and I saw him no more that day. The political career Green launched seemed to be on a downward trajectory. Lincoln decided to leave the Illinois House of Representatives after his term ended in 1841. He wrote in his 1860 autobiographical statement that he, quote, declined a re-election to the legislature without giving a reason. Most historians think Lincoln, by 1842, had gotten bored with the General Assembly and turned his attention to winning a seat in the U.S. House of Representatives. John Todd Stewart, the local incumbent and Lincoln's former law partner, had indicated he would not stand for re-election. In Illinois, the Springfield area congressional seat was the highest office a Whig could aspire to. The Democrats controlled all state positions, and Whigs could not shake their grip. Lincoln quietly quashed an effort to nominate him for governor in 1841, not wishing to be a sacrificial lamb. Lincoln's departure from the House may have been hastened by shifting political winds. When William Henry Harrison died in the White House in April 1841, he had been succeeded by John Tyler. Tyler was a Virginian, and like many Southern Whigs, he joined the party in disgust over Andrew Jackson's high-handed attacks on the Bank of the United States. But Tyler had absolutely no sympathy for the Whigs' economic program, and despite the Whigs' fervent belief in congressional supremacy, Tyler used the presidency to dictate policy. He forced congressional Whigs to accept a tariff bill that set rates well below the protective levels that party leaders like Henry Clay felt important. And while Tyler disliked Jackson's approach to the Bank of the United States, he cared little for the bank itself. Tyler twice vetoed bills reestablishing the Bank of the United States, the centerpiece of the Whigs' economic program. Enraged and desperate to save face with voters, the Whigs read Tyler out of the party and tried to run against him in the 1841 and 1842 midterm elections, casting him as the reason the party's program had stalled. It didn't work. As historian Michael Holt writes, quote, However obnoxious the Whig measures may have been to partisan Democrats, the dissatisfaction, disappointment, and consequent refusal to vote of Whig supporters played a far larger role in the turnaround. Democrats did not beat Whigs by outgaining them among new voters. Instead, Whigs' disillusioned supporters simply did not vote. By 1841, the Whigs, who held about 45% of the seats in the Illinois House in 1839, occupied less than a third of the chamber. 
With Illinois Democrats united, the Whigs passed into super-minority status. But Illinois Whigs refused to submit to the Democrats and fought them at every turn. The Illinois State Bank continued to provide them ammunition. After years of teetering on the edge, the bank closed in early 1842. With paper notes issued by the bank now worthless, the state auditor, James Shields, said Illinois would no longer accept those notes for payment of taxes, insisting on specie or hard coin. This meant anyone with paper currency had a problem, something the Whigs shouted as loud as they could. Lincoln's friend and sometime physician, Anson Henry, accused the Democrats of, quote, arbitrary and tyrannical usurpations of power. Shields, in turn, suggested Henry wanted to start a rebellion. Lincoln, as partisan a Whig as existed in Illinois, jumped into the fight. On September 2, 1842, the Sangamo Journal ran a letter from a place called Lost Townships, signed by a woman named Rebecca. In the letter, Rebecca told of a recent visit to her friend Jeff, who had exploded in anger when he read Shields' currency order in the Illinois State Register, a Democratic newspaper. He shouted that it meant the paper currency he collected was, quote, dead on my hands, and that he didn't have enough hard coin to pay his taxes. Jeff had hard words for Shields, saying, quote, Shields is a fool as well as a liar. With him, truth is out of the question. And as for getting a good, bright, passable lie out of him, you might as well try to strike fire from a cake of tallow. Up to this point, Lincoln, the author of the letter, had played by the rough but accepted rules of political combat. But now he stepped out of character and aimed right at a touchy spot for Shields. The humor of the piece, such as it is, was that Jeff, a committed Democrat, thought Shields was a Whig. Jeff claimed to have peeked into a ballroom where they, quote, wouldn't let no Democrats in. There, he said, he spotted Shields among the well-dressed and aristocratic personages. Jeff wrote, quote, I looked in the window, and there was the same fellow Shields floating about on the air, without heft or earthly substance, just like a lock of cat fur where cats had been fighting. He was paying his money to this one and that one and t'other one, and suffering great loss, because it wasn't silver instead of state paper. And the sweet distress he seemed to be in, his very features, in the ecstatic agony of his soul, spoke audibly and distinctly. Dear girls, it is distressing, but I cannot marry you all. Too well I know how much you suffer, but do, do remember, it is not my fault that I am so handsome and so interesting. Rebecca ended the letter asking the journal to explain whether Shields was a Whig or a Democrat. Quote, I don't care about it for myself, for I know well enough how it is already, but I want to convince Jeff. It may do some good to him and others like him to know who and what these officers of state are. The Rebecca letter leans heavily on lost stereotypes of Democratic voters. Read today, it seems much too on the nose to be funny. But it was a hit with the Sangamo Journal's Whig readership. People started teasing Shields on the streets of Springfield. This 
put Lincoln in danger. James Shields was a native of County Tyrone in what is today Northern Ireland. In 1842, he was 36 years old and stood about 5 foot 8, with a high forehead crowned by a widow's peak. Shields was an intelligent man, but touchy and ridiculously vain. Gustav Kerner, Shields' law partner, wrote decades later, quote, His vanity was indeed inordinate, really so much that it became amusing rather than offensive. Shields also had a hot temper. As a youth in Ireland, Shields once slapped a veteran of the Battle of Waterloo for praising the performance of the British troops in that battle. The slap led to a duel averted only by the defective condition of the pistols selected. In Springfield, Shields established himself as an attorney and became an ally of Stephen Douglas. He had a successful political career. Shields later became the first and to date only person to represent three different states in the United States Senate. But he also seems to have stepped right up to the borderline of what was considered, for lack of a better term, acceptable violence in early America. During one court hearing, Shields hit a fellow attorney with a book, yelling, quote, If you have no law in your head, I'll beat some into it. Shields had succeeded professionally and politically, but he was a social climber who wanted a place in Whig-dominated society circles. Perhaps he showed a little too much eagerness. Perhaps the leaders of Springfield society scoffed at a parvenu. In either case, Shields became an object of hushed ridicule among the city's smart set. Lincoln, by mocking Shields' pretensions, brought this disdain out in the open. Infuriated, Shields first called on Simeon Francis, the editor of the Sangamo Journal, who freely admitted that Lincoln authored the Rebecca letter. The state auditor then dashed a letter off to Lincoln, quote, I will take the liberty of requiring a full, positive, and absolute retraction of all offensive allusions used by you in these communications in relation to my private character and standing as a man, as an apology for the insults conveyed in them. This may prevent consequences which no one will regret more than myself. This last line was a warning. Apologize, or we fight. Lincoln was in Tremont, about 60 miles north of Springfield, where he was traveling the legal circuit. Shields and his friend John Whiteside traveled to Tremont to deliver the letter. Lincoln's friends Elias Merriman, a local doctor, and William Butler, his landlord, sped off to warn Abraham. Lincoln's reaction to Shields' letter was dangerously arrogant. He may have been poorly served by his friends. Merriman had fought a duel and served as a surgeon at others. Historian Douglas Wilson wrote that William Butler took a pair of dueling pistols on the road to Tremont. Within an hour of receiving Shields' letter, Lincoln replied, quote, Now, sir, there is in this so much assumption of facts and so much menace as to consequences that I cannot submit to answer that note further than I have, and to add that the consequence to which I suppose you allude would be matter of as great regret to me as it possibly could be to you. Merriman may have been responsible for the hectoring tone of this note. Historians blame him for pushing Lincoln toward the duel. 
As Wilson wrote, quote, The Code of Honor had very clear rules and procedures, and as Lincoln rose in society, he had more to do with people who considered themselves bound by this code. At the same time, appealing to the code was a way for someone like Shields, an aspiring, self-made immigrant, to assert his aristocratic pretensions. Shields sent a second note the following Monday that backed down a bit, but otherwise repeated the demands of the first. Lincoln did not even write out a reply. He told John Whiteside, who brought the letter, that Shields' first, threatening note had to be withdrawn. Shields then threw down the gauntlet. He named Whiteside as his second for the duel. Lincoln, upon receipt of Shields' note, named Merriman his second. Suddenly, and impulsively, Lincoln found himself in an affair of honor. As a challenged party, Lincoln had the right to pick the weapons. According to historian Charles Strozier, Lincoln at one point suggested throwing cow dung at ten paces. But he finally settled on cavalry swords, designed not for artful swordplay, but for slashing, in the words of Douglas Wilson. On paper, this should have given Lincoln an advantage. He was six foot four, six inches taller than Shields, and had unusually long arms. Usher Linder later claimed that Lincoln chose swords because he felt they would allow him to disarm Shields. Lincoln said, quote, And furthermore, I didn't want the damned fellow to kill me, which I rather think he would have done if we had selected pistols. But Lincoln was matching up with a very, very dangerous man. An early biographer of Shields wrote, quote, Since Shields, before he left Ireland, was a good swordsman and had taught fencing in Quebec 16 years before, and through life claimed that he feared to face no man with the sword, the result of the duel would be apt to have been different from that anticipated, based, as it was, upon the disparity in the size of the combatants. Dueling was a crime in Illinois, and when Lincoln and Merriman returned to Springfield, they learned affidavits had been sworn out, and that they faced probable arrest. The party solved the problem by leaving the state. They first traveled to Alton along the Mississippi River, with a quick stopover in Jacksonville to pick up the swords. Then, they traveled to a place in the middle of the river named Bloody Island, part of Missouri, where dueling was legal. Word had traveled that there might be a fight, and crowds got on the boat with Shields and Lincoln. William Butler set himself up on a log to watch the action. Shields and Lincoln stood at opposite ends of the field of honor, shaped like a rectangle, with a plank ten feet long and one foot high placed between them. Stepping over it would have resulted in a forfeit, or worse. Meanwhile, Whiteside and Merriman, along with John Hardin and another attorney, were trying to negotiate peace between the principals. W.H. Souther, a journalist who was at the scene, later wrote that Shields and Lincoln only communicated to each other through notes that their friends walked back and forth between the parties. Lincoln offered to acknowledge authorship of the articles if Shields withdrew his first menacing note. Shields refused, which sent his friend Dr. T.M. Hope into a tirade. Souther reported, quote, He said Shields was bringing the Democratic Party of Illinois into ridicule and contempt by his folly. Finally, he sprang to his feet, faced the stubborn little Irishman, and blurted out, Jimmy, 
you little whippersnapper. If you don't settle this, I will take you across my knee and spank you. Shields, relenting, sent a note to Lincoln, asking if he was the author of the Rebecca letter. Lincoln had already written out his reply. It said, quote, I wrote that wholly for political effect. I had no intention of injuring your personal or private character or standing as a man or a gentleman, and I did not then think, and do not now think, that that article could produce, or has produced, that effect against you. And had I anticipated such an effect, I would have forborne to write it. And I will add that your conduct towards me, so far as I knew, had always been gentlemanly, and that I had no personal pique against you, and no cause for any. At this, the parties came to an agreement, shook hands, and parted. William Butler was left deeply disappointed. The Shields affair became the talk of Springfield. Whiteside and Merriman published separate accounts of what happened in the Sangamo Journal. Lincoln was deeply embarrassed by the episode, which did some serious short-term damage to his political career and could have cost him his legal license. Two months before his death, a Union officer visiting Lincoln in the White House mentioned the duel during a visit. Lincoln's face flushed, and he said, quote, I do not deny it, but if you desire my friendship, you will never mention the circumstance again. One immediate effect of the near duel was that Lincoln, as far as we know, stopped writing anonymous articles for the Sangamo Journal, though his political speeches would continue to lean into ridicule and sarcasm for another decade. Mary Todd later claimed that she and her friend Julia Jane penned a follow-up to the Rebecca letter and that Lincoln had fought the duel, in part, to hide her authorship. That's an assertion scholars disagree about. But the two were edging closer to each other. Mary had seen plenty of suitors since parting with Lincoln. One was Stephen Douglas, who seemed too focused on his career. Mary rejected another suitor for his age, and, as she put it, quote, two sweet little objections, meaning his children. Mary was being choosy, and for good reason. As Jean Baker, Todd's biographer, writes, women had one power in the game of courting, the veto. Baker writes, quote, Once married, women were without rights as citizens, but in a catch-22, if they stayed single, they were ridiculed as spinsters. Thus, for young American women, marriage was a necessity. It was the way they earned their living. But they surely had reasons to hesitate. Lincoln and Todd had not seen much of each other in 1841 or 1842, but Lincoln seems to have been thinking about Todd. In a letter to Joshua Speed in July 1842, Lincoln wrote, quote, I must regain confidence in my own ability to keep my resolves when they are made. In that ability, you know, I once prided myself as the only, or at least the chief gem of my character. That gem I lost. How and when, you too well know. How Mary and Abraham got back together is as uncertain as most of their pre-married life as a couple. There are two stories. In one, John Hardin, the attorney who helped broker peace between Shields and Lincoln, invited Lincoln and Todd to a wedding in Jacksonville, where they either ended up riding together as part of a company 
or were seated across from one another at dinner, where they struck up a conversation. In another, the wife of Simeon Francis, the Sangamo Journal editor, brought Lincoln and Todd together at a party, saying, quote, Be friends again. Mary and Abraham were discreet. Todd later said it was, quote, best to keep the secret courtship from all eyes and ears. The two of them met at the Francis's house, or at the Edwards, where Mary lived. Baker writes, quote, The Lincoln courtship occurred at a historical moment when some courting was out of the house and very public, taking place during picnics, sleigh rides, and Springfield's dancing parties, all of which are mentioned by Mary Todd. But as often, a romance developed in walks down country lanes, on parlor sofas, such as the horsehair one in the Edwards home, and in the bower of trees surrounding the house. That is why there were few sightings of Abraham and Mary in Busybody Springfield in the fall of 1842. On October 5th, Lincoln wrote to Joshua Speed to ask him, quote, a closer question. Lincoln wrote, quote, Are you now, in feeling as well as judgment, glad you are married as you are? From anybody but me, this would be an impudent question not to be tolerated. But I know you will pardon it in me. Please answer it quickly, as I feel impatient to know. Speed replied, quote, Not to hesitate or longer doubt that happiness would be the result of his marriage to Miss Todd. Lincoln's friend told him his marriage to Fanny Henning had been a success when, quote, he and Miss Henning had finally made up and determined to risk their happiness in each other's keeping. On the morning of November 4, 1842, Mary suddenly announced to her sister Elizabeth that she and Abraham would marry, and that they would do it that night, a message that Lincoln conveyed at the same time to the Reverend Charles Dresser, an Episcopal minister. Short engagements were not unusual. As Baker writes, quote, Weddings of the 19th century were shorter and simpler affairs than they are today. Indeed, getting married on what would seem to us the spur of the moment was quite common. In 1855, Lucy Stone and Henry Blackwell were married before breakfast, and on their way to New York by 8 o'clock in the morning. But as historian Michael Burlingame points out, Elizabeth had thrown a big wedding for their sister Frances three years before, and had probably hoped to do the same for Mary. The historian Catherine Clinton writes Abraham and Mary may have sped the wedding to prevent the Edwards' objections to their pairing from becoming a serious obstacle. Lincoln and Todd wanted to marry at Dresser's house, but the Edwards, citing their guardianship of Mary, insisted on hosting the wedding. Elizabeth, peeved at her sister forcing her hand, spat out, quote, Mary Todd, even a free Negro would give her family time to bake a gingerbread cake. Mary shot back, quote, Well, that will be good enough for plebeians, I suppose. Everything was rushed. The marriage license got issued that day. Stephen Logan gave Lincoln some papers to review an hour before his partner headed out to his nuptials. Mary wore her sister Frances's wedding dress. Lincoln may have gotten a wedding ring, engraved Love is Eternal, that day. The cakes for the wedding, still warm, arrived just before the ceremony began. That night, 
as rain fell on the Edwards mansion, Lincoln and Todd stood before Dresser and 30 guests. The haste of the ceremony, the Edwards' barely concealed annoyance, and standard wedding jitters made things awkward at first. Then Lincoln got to the part in the Episcopal ceremony, unknown to many of the guests, where the groom states, quote, With this ring, I thee endow, with all my goods and chattels, lands, and tenements. Thomas Brown, an old state Supreme Court justice who only knew the Baptist rite, suddenly yelled, quote, Lord Jesus Christ, God Almighty Lincoln, the statute fixes all that. Reverend Dresser nearly broke out laughing at this outburst and needed a minute to compose himself before proclaiming Abraham Lincoln and Mary Todd husband and wife. A week later, Lincoln concluded a letter to a client with, quote, Nothing new here except my marrying, which to me is matter of profound wonder. Before we conclude, let's go back and revisit that Shields duel. Imagine the Seconds had been less insistent on bringing peace, and that Shields and Lincoln crossed swords. Then let's imagine Shields, with far more weapons experience than Lincoln, found an opening that led to a tragic outcome. What would we be able to say about Lincoln's life if it ended in 1842? His achievements, to this point, were mainly personal and impressive. He escaped poverty and manual labor against overwhelming odds. Despite his limited formal education, Lincoln pushed himself through a graduate school-level course of study to become a lawyer, helped by a network of friends. Those friends also helped him win a political election at age 25. Lincoln had become a House Minority Leader at age 27 and was one of Illinois' most prominent Whigs. He had transcended the limited world of Thomas Lincoln and its body-killing labor. But by 1842, most of Lincoln's political achievements had evaporated. The internal improvements he championed in the 1830s were dead. The state bank he defended was dead. Only his efforts to move the capital to Springfield had endured. If you were going to talk about the most promising young politician in Illinois in 1842, you'd be speaking not of Abraham Lincoln, but Stephen Douglas. Douglas's loss to John Todd Stewart in 1838 had been a bump. He served as Illinois Secretary of State and then as a member of the Illinois Supreme Court, and he was the undisputed leader of the majority Democratic Party in Illinois. And this all occurred before Douglas was 30. In the Illinois House, Lincoln was a tactician, not a lawmaker. As Michael Burlingame writes, quote, In his leadership role, he had curiously little to do with framing legislation. Of the 1,647 bills passed during Lincoln's four terms, he directly introduced only 10. Another 21 had been brought forward by committees on which he served. Lincoln offered only eight resolutions and 14 petitions. It is no wonder that fellow Whig leaders observed that during his years in the legislature, Lincoln never gave any special evidence of that masterly ability for which he was afterward distinguished. Lincoln was a devoted Whig, but he added little that was original to the party platform. He was an effective speaker, 
but his effectiveness laid with attacking Democrats and, all too often, African Americans. There had been hints of something greater lurking in him, most notably in his anti-lynching address to the Young Men's Lyceum in 1838. But these were brief flashes of light, still covered by a bushel. If he had fallen on that island in the middle of the Mississippi, Lincoln's obituary in the Sangamo Journal would have grieved the loss of one of the Whigs' most effective leaders, and probably praised his work to relocate the capital to Springfield. Perhaps they would have quoted some excerpts from his speech on the bank in 1839. But these would have been the ephemeral words of a partisan, not the moral voice we know today. The man Mary Todd took for her husband that rainy November night in 1842 had made a difficult personal journey to economic and emotional security. But those watching their exchange of vows, many of whom traveled in Springfield political circles, must have expected the groom to remain politically obscure. Little would shake that impression over the next 12 years. The young Lincoln had a party but to become great, he needed a cause. That will be a story for another time. We've come to the end of this season of the podcast. I'll be taking the next few weeks off to research and write the next batch of episodes and focus on my day job covering the Alabama legislature. I haven't yet decided when the next season will launch, but I'm aiming for late June or mid-July. I think it'll be exciting, covering Lincoln's congressional career, his brief retreat from politics, and his return to the public arena as the nation's bonds started snapping. I'm looking forward to it, and I hope you'll join me when I return. For all of you who have been tuning in these last three months, and who have passed along kind words about the podcast, thank you. It really means a lot to hear from you, and keeps this work going. Becoming Lincoln was written, hosted, and produced by Brian Lyman. That's me. Our logo was designed by Robin Hammontree. If you like what you've heard, please leave a five-star review on iTunes or Stitcher, or check us out on Facebook or Twitter at Becoming Lincoln. Thanks again for all of your support, and I'll see you in the summer.